1: The nation magazine this is start making sense political talk without the boring parts i'm john weiner like everybody else on the left we're excited about alexandria ocasio-cortez and her proposal for a green new deal but the left needs more than good ideas that's what kate aronoff says we'll speak with her later in the show also 31,000 teachers are on strike right now in Los Angeles. It's the biggest strike in a long time in the second biggest school district in the country with more than half a million students. And it's not just about salaries and benefits. The teachers say they want smaller class size, which means more teachers. We'll have a report from Pedro Noguera. But first, a political movement combining a left-wing economic program with anti-immigrant initiatives. That's developing right now in Germany and France. Could it happen here? For that, we turn to David Adler. He's the policy coordinator for the European Spring. That's Europe's first transnational party led by Yanis Varoufakis. We've talked about it here. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, The Guardian, and Jacobin. And now he has the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. We reached him today in Athens, David Adler, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks so much for having me, John.
1: Well, Germany has done more than any other European country to welcome refugees from Syria and other places. They've taken in more than a million people. The United States, in contrast, last year took in 22,000. In many places in Europe, campaigning against refugees has become a leading political tactic for the right. And of course, that's also central to Donald Trump's politics. But now in Germany, there's also a left-wing group that's anti-immigrant. Tell us about the movement whose name translates as Rise Up.
2: In September 2018, a German MP by the name of Wagenich, who belongs to the left-wing party, Die Linke, launched a new movement, Aufstehen, or Rise Up. And the idea there is that German workers must be protected from the undercutting of wages and the... um, Massive costs to the German welfare state posed by this influx of migrants. And so in that way, they're mirroring what's happening also on the far right in in Germany by pointing the finger at Merkel's generous policy in 2015 and saying, look what you've done. You've wrought havoc on our working classes.
1: And there's something like this in France where Jean-Luc Mélenchon leads La France Insoumise a left populist movement that has been critical of mass migration. Tell us about France.
2: So Jean-Luc Mélenchon's La France insoumise is there, is similar in a, one particular way um, to, to, to Wagenknecht and her movement of Stein, which is that they share a common enemy. Both Aufstein and Jean-Luc Mélenchon point a lot of blame at the European institutions. And as a result... They take aim at a really broad swathe of the policies that were instigated and implemented by those institutions. Some of those we associate with the European single market, like the freedom of goods to travel, eliminating the ability for national governments to maintain their trade barriers, or the freedom of finance to travel across these, these barriers, thereby limiting the ability of national governments to implement capital controls and can, and control, and regulate their finance. But in another way, uh, given that the EU has also implemented a policy of the free movement of people, that, that fourth freedom, as it's known in, in Europe, has been swallowed by this anti-European, anti-EU skepticism. And so as a result, they've developed quite a full-throated critique of, of free movement, of an open borders policy, whether that's in Germany or in France or, frankly, in Britain, um, as a kind of instrument of capitalist power that is, pushed down against the French worker. So Mélenchon likes to say, I'm in favor. If if ten thousand French uh, if ten thousand doctors arrive to the borders of France, of course we let them in. But not the lowly immigrant workers, which he has said, you know, steals the bread of the French worker who uh, is already struggling to find employment and whose employment prospects are all all exacerbated by uh, these this, this influx of, of fresh, insecure, and easily exploited labor from abroad.
1: You mentioned uh, Britain. Let's talk about the UK, where, of course, Jeremy Corbyn leads the Labour Party. Where do they stand right now on refugees and immigrants?
2: So I want to be clear about this. Jeremy Corbyn, throughout his tenure at Westminster, has been a very vocal advocate for migrant rights. And for the last 25 years has said things like, you know, the only pe- reason people migrate is to survive, you know, making a very human case that for migrants and, and their human rights. However, as party leader, he's adopted a much harder line of migration, basically saying that, the freedom of movement parroting these similar lines. The freedom of movement is actually a mechanism by which the capitalist undercuts unions in Britain. It's a very popular position among Britain's organized labor. It's, it's unions who are very, very strongly in support of Jeremy Corbyn's candidacy as party leader. And so it's become the party's position that you know, as a result of Brexit, they plan to curb freedom of movement from from, from the European Union. And that, of course, that they have an eye towards humanitarian migration. Of course, they would never, you know, dare to, to violate things like the Geneva Convention. But when it comes to this concept that they call economic migration, people, workers coming over to pursue opportunities in Britain, well, that's a different thing entirely. And they are the priorities to protect, quote, Britain's economic needs, as opposed to the more humanitarian concern that Corbyn would have added in his earlier position as, as an MP at Westminster.
1: Remind us about the argument, the longstanding historic argument in favor of internationalism on the left. I remember something about the working men have no country.
2: You know, the case for open borders or uh, for free movement, it can be made on on two grounds. It can be made on, on, an, on ethical grounds, uh, namely that, you know, workers deserve... Uh, equal rights to migrate to opportunity, uh, but arguably more important, the, the movement of people across borders it creates new strategic opportunities for the left. Um, you know, and and in the piece, I, I point to this fantastic quote from from Lenin from the early 20th century, where he basically says, "Look, let's not let's not be mistaken that uh, poverty is driving people to migrate, and let's also not be mistaken that capitalists will exploit that." poverty as much as they can but he suggests that there's a progressive significance of mass migration which is that you know capitalism is is drawing all these people together it's re- it's destroying the borders that separated them it's reminding us of our common humanity and in many ways and i would argue this is certainly true in the european case it's drastically reducing prejudices between different countries and creating transnational communities of Polish workers living in Britain who then are connected to to their homeland, of Greek workers who have fled Greece and actually moved to Germany, the heart of the oppressive core. It's creating these transnational networks that can then form a more common front in the fight against capitalist power. So that was the case that emerged in the early 20th century and kind of became uh, hegemonic in the European left.
1: So we know the the argument you know, foreigners are coming to take our jobs and lower our wages, and so we need borders and walls. But is it actually true that immigration causes a fall in wages and a loss of jobs for native-born workers?
2: When you look at the actual evidence for the cases being made uh, in support of border restrictions, none of them really stand up to scrutiny. There's a great quote from Jonathan Portis, who's a, a quite famous UK labor economist, who says basically, crudely, you know, immigrants are just not taking our jobs. And there's all sorts of research about how migrants contribute more in taxes and they take in benefits, how they bring their skills to enhance growth prospects. Um, now, there's there's some there's some evidence that suggests that at the very, very low end of, of the scale that there is some question around whether they de- depress wages. But it's not migration that causes the problem, but precisely its restriction. So if you look at the U.S., it's the most instructive case. Now, of course, we're all caught up in these conversations around the wall, but we basically know that you know border restrictions along our Mexican border have done very little to prevent people from crossing over because sheer desperation, fleeing violence and persecution in, in Central America in particular, just compels people to move and to, to move to opportunity. Now, what we do know, though, is that when you fail to recognize as legitimate, as authorized, and as legal those migrants, that's when the labor market really gets into trouble because unauthorized workers are indeed very, very vulnerable to exploitation by by their by their employers. And this is an old argument in the in the US case. I mean, this is what Cesar Chavez was uh, saying back in the day, which is that you know, I'm all in support of, of migrant rights, but we need to be very attentive. This question of illegal migration, because there's nothing that poses a, a bigger threat, and this is, of course, what Marx pointed out when he looked at the relationship between Irish emigration and, and, and English working class, uh, between you know illegal exploitable labor and uh, authorized migration. So in that case, the economics don't really stand to scrutiny. Now there's a whole other argument about the cultural side of this, that migrants bring in all sorts of new cultures that undermine the integrity of working class traditions. And if you look at Jean-Luc Mélenchon, for example, who strongly opposes the Burqa uh, and considers the Burkini to be quote provocative, um, there's all sorts of ways in which we the far left there gets wrapped up in some of the language of the far right in terms of opposing multiculturalism on the grounds that it's an offense to a, to a national culture. Now, again, here, it's hard to actually make this case uh, in, in two ways. The first way that it really doesn't stand the scrutiny is that the people shouting loudest on behalf of their cultural grievances tend to be in the areas with the fewest numbers of migrants. So there's not a good relationship between cultural anxiety and actual numbers of migrants. The other way the cultural argument does, is, is undermined is that the, the research suggests That contact between different kinds of communities is actually a route to sort of more solidarity and more positive attitudes towards that outgroup than keeping them separate. So one of the cultural arguments is don't kick the hornet's nest, don't allow mass migration because that will inflame xenophobia. And you you need to pay attention to those disaffected white working class people who feel like they don't even recognize their neighborhood anymore. And of course, the great irony is if they had more migrants, they'd like those migrants more. So that cultural argument on those empirical grounds also stand scrutiny. It seems like there's really not enough evidence to justify the kinds of border controls that these European left nationalists are calling for.
1: Final question about political movements combining a left-wing economic program with anti-immigrant initiatives. Could it happen here? Do you see any signs in American politics pointing in that direction?
2: Now, in many ways, it already has. So if you look at Bernie Sanders, our great hope on the American left, we look at what he says. He has said, and I quote here, open borders is a Koch brothers policy. I want to stress the dynamics here because the Republican party has moved so swiftly in the direction of an anti-migrant nativist position that actually opens up a lot of fertile ground for the American left to become, to voice a more pro-migrant position, right? So the dynamics are changing a lot because the politics of migration are not very principled politics. They're kind of the politics of opposition. But the statics, not the dynamics, are not looking very good in the American case. I mean, we have some deep-set anti-immigrant positions, all totally ironic given our reputation as being so hospitable to the huddled masses. But left-wing politics can, and all too often are, detached from principles on the question of migration. Now. This is because we have venerated the nation state, because we believe in American exceptionalism, because we have hard limits on our imagination for what an open-border world would look like. But also, it's because the left is very, very often playing defense. And then a primary objection to my piece, as I mentioned, is that, you know, look, Jeremy Corbyn's in a tough spot. If he were to praise open borders, then he would lose the election. And I, can, I know I have a lot of sympathy for that. Um, and I think that there's a real potential for the American left, caught in an electoralist conundrum about whether to seize power by making major concessions to the anti-immigrant attitudes of the so-called base, or to stand up for those principles, try to to borrow a phrase from our liberal friends, to try to lead on this issue uh, and face the electoral consequences. But I think that it's it's going to be up to activists to inject this principle into our left politics in the United States, as in Europe. And to allow our more principled leaders to to just to to throw up their hands and say, look, open border, open borders is actually what the base wants. And I'm going to support that position, not on the grounds that I'm a a Leninist thinker, but on the grounds that actually democratically this makes sense. So, you know, it's really going to be our job to change those minds, lay out this case for why open borders is not just a humanitarian concern, but a strategic one. And in a world of, of changing climate, a necessary one, and force the hand of our uh, more progressive leaders to say, you know what, I see that logic uh, electorally, strategically, et cetera, and, and I'm going to adopt that position.
1: David Adler in Athens. He wrote the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. Thank you, David. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Take care. It's time to talk about an initiative more sweeping than anything proposed by the Democratic Party in recent memory, a Green New Deal, and the larger challenges it raises for left leadership. For that, we turn to Kate Aronoff. She writes about climate and American politics for The Intercept and The Nation. Kate Aronoff, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks for having
1: me. We're excited to see the new Democratic members of Congress in the House talking about a Green New Deal. It's the kind of big thinking that party leaders have avoided over the past few decades when liberals in Washington have focused on incremental policy tweaks, compromises with Republicans and corporations. But you say today's progressives and Democratic socialists face a much bigger challenge than simply passing good legislation. What is it?
3: So the challenge we face right now is having to basically recreate uh, what constitutes economic common sense and uh, you know, re- retake that ground away from the right. Because as of now, um, we're all sort of operating on the right's terms and we talk about things like the economy and, and the state. It's worth going back to how the sort of consensus that we're all living in now got built. So, After the oil crisis at sort of the dawn of the Reagan administration, neoliberals have been working for decades to construct a new economic consensus. So, you know, more than making an argument for lowering wages, for busting unions, they had this fairly sweeping worldview that the market was the sort of ultimate arbiter of information and so crafted policy proposals, built institutions, canvassed business leaders, all to sort of make that a reality. And when Reagan came into office, he did a lot of that. He he carried through on a lot of promises that right-wing think tanks had been sort of crafting for a long time.
1: I want to talk for a minute about that concept of what constitutes social and economic common sense and go back to the right-wing effort. Uh, I was especially interested in your piece in what you write about the Heritage Fund and what you call the mandate for leadership when Reagan first took office—it's quite an amazing story. Tell us about the mandate for leadership.
3: Basically, this this think tank, which had been building for decades, funding from business leaders, wrote a, a more than one thousand page document um, laying out a number of policy priorities um, that the conservative the conservative right wanted to implement. And so, when he was preparing to take office, he handed every member of his transition team a copy of this of this one thousand page Heritage Foundation document, and uh, ended up in uh, his his first years in office, taking up the vast majority of those.
1: So, two thousand conservative policy priorities outlined by the Heritage Foundation, after more than a decade of research and work at their think tank. And uh, Reagan took up nearly two-thirds of those proposals in just his first year in office. It does seem like the left has reason to feel a little uh, outgunned at this moment. But now let's go back to the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal challenges the common sense of neoliberal social and economic thought. Let's spell that out a little bit more about what are the implications of a Green New Deal for Social and economic common sense.
3: I think, I think the Green New Deal, more than more than many other proposals, because it is such a it's, it is such a big vision, um, really does help to reimagine what we do think of as, as being sort of common sense. And so, you know, there is a sort of neoliberal answer to the climate crisis. I don't think it's really an answer so much as it is a, a, a response. But that would say, and and people do say this, that if we just get the prices right, if we tax carbon, for instance, appropriately and, and, you know, implement what's called the social cost of carbon, then the market will sort itself out, that the market is really um, the sort of all-knowing entity um, that is better than any governmental institution, than any individual at sifting through information. And so we, if we help it along to process that information effectively, it will take care of this crisis for us.
1: That means the market will conclude that coal... Oil and gas are not as promising a future profits as solar and wind energy, and therefore investors will learn how much more money there is to be made in the new forms of energy.
3: Yes, that is the theory, and as we know, and 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 this is true not just for energy policy and climate, but for uh, many parts of the economy, Uh, the idea that that is the case and that we live in a world of efficient free markets is, is basically false. The U.S. government alone spends $20 billion propping up the fossil fuel industry, making it possible. The IMF has estimated governments around the world spend as much as $10 million a minute in fossil fuel sub- subsidies, indirect and in direct subsidies. So, uh, what the Green New Deal says, I think, in a in a way that isn't isn't particularly radical. Certainly, wouldn't have been radical seventy or eighty years ago. Even is that the state and the government has a very strong role to play in how we transition off of fossil fuels. And so that includes things like remaking our grid, allowing the grid to accept uh, energy, renewable energy, rather than just distribute it out in the sort of fossil fuel model. Uh, That means building up infrastructure in cities for public transportation, for housing. And these are all needs that, um, as we have seen, and as we we know all too intimately, um, the private sector isn't willing to do, um, if the private sector uh, was was set up to take on the climate crisis, it probably would have already, and we we would not be in the place where we are facing down mass death, the sixth largest extinction, um, as as Elizabeth Colbert has put it, and many others, and a really grave situation that reports like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Changes report, the National Climate Assessment are all making clear. Sort of, if <laughs> I think we're we're well out of time to wait for the free market to come and save us.
1: Behind people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, there are some think tank policy research institutions on the progressive left, not as well-funded, not as old, not as big as the Heritage Foundation. But you mentioned in your piece a couple of what you call scrappy left-leaning think tanks. Tell us about them.
3: There are groups which I, I, that, I bet on the Green New Deal in particular have been doing really foundational work. So, the Political Economic uh, Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts, there's an economist there named Bob Pollan who's done some really foundational work around uh, what a Green New Deal would actually look like. Several economists in the UK who, Alexander Ocasio Cortez's, Team and folks sort of thinking through this plan have spoken with people like Mariana Mazucato and Anne Pettifor um, have also done great work on this. So there is work happening. I don't want to I don't want to make it seem like we're you know we're, we're starting from scratch. We're certainly not. There have been people doing tremendous thinking um, on the Green New Deal and on other issues. But I think just the amount of resources it would take to do that kind of really deep sort of leadership pipeline development work, you know placing placing people in, in everything from judgeships to appointments to things like that you know we don't have a federalist society either on the left necessarily so i think there's just all of these institutions which have spent decades sort of crafting these um really elaborate ways to feed people from the age of 18 into the sort of top echelons of the political system um and i think that's, that's sort of what the what the left needs to figure out now i mean and, and i think that you know there, there's there's uh, I have not gotten to report on this too intensely, but I think there's probably an interesting piece to be written about how all of these um, progressive newcomers to Congress are filling out their staff position. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had her the application for her, her staff positions on a Google Doc, which I imagine is a little different than <laughs> how the right does things. It will be something I'm really excited to see, um, hopefully sorted out, is, you know, how do you create not just, you know, and progressive electeds, but uh, staffers, policy wonks, all of these, all of these other positions that sort of make up the, the sort of foundations of a new, of a new hegemony.
1: It took the Heritage Foundation decades uh, to get to where it was when Reagan took office. So this is going to take a while for us, isn't it? Don't we also have to preach the virtues of patience?
3: The truth is, we don't have a while. The Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change has said we have about twelve years. To catastrophic warming, so the truth of it is, we just have to do a lot very quickly, and that includes getting the kinds of policy wonks and uh, progressive elected officials and um, all of these people sort of in place and, and with the armed with the ideas to rethink our relationship to the economy, to the earth, and and you know to one another. Crises are times of tremendous hardship are very scary in many senses, but I think there are also times of tremendous experimentation and growth very quickly. If we look back to the New Deal, what the Green New Deal famously references back to, the United States did not have a welfare state, right? We didn't know how that would work. We didn't know at the beginning of World War II how to beat the Nazis, but we figured it out because the problem was so pressing and so dire.
1: Kate Aronoff, you can read her article, A Mandate for Left Leadership, at thenation.com. Thank you, Kate.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: 31,000 teachers are on strike right now in Los Angeles. It's the biggest strike in a long time in the second biggest school district in the country with more than half a million students. For comment and analysis, we turn to Pedro Noguera, He's a professor of education at UCLA and a contributor to The Nation. He's appeared on CNN, MSNBC, and NPR. And his most recent book is Excellence Through Equity. We reached him today at UCLA. Pedro Noguera, welcome.
4: Thanks, John. Great to be here.
1: Well, the first day of the strike, Monday, 50,000 strikers and supporters marched on City Hall in the rain. It was an amazing event. The strike is not just about salaries and benefits. What is it about?
4: Well, it's about conditions in schools. Uh, L.A. has some of the highest uh, uh, class sizes in the nation, students per pupil, Uh, We have class sizes in high schools, close to 40 students, uh, which really is not uh, an adequate learning environment. And uh, the teachers are also calling for other supports for kids, counselors, nurses in schools. We serve a very high-need population um, with kids who come with lots of other needs, and uh, schools are overwhelmed. So in many ways, they're they're, they're as focused on the work conditions in our schools as they are about salary and benefits.
1: Well, we've seen some amazing teachers' strikes in the last months in Oklahoma, in Arizona, in West Virginia. Very inspiring and remarkable. But isn't this one different?
4: It is very different. The politics are different because it's California, uh, which is, as we know, a blue state, and Los Angeles, which is also a very blue city, So we have, um, you know, a governor just elected with support from the state teachers' union, uh, the state superintendent also decisively elected with support from the teachers' unions, and then um, Mayor Eric Garcetti. And so it would seem to be a climate where teachers could pretty much get what they want. However, California has been um, underfunding education for many, many years, and that's part of the problem. That's one of the reasons why we are, we rank 41st in the nation in uh, in education. And so this is, to some degree, this is about that, the disinvestment in public education that's occurred over several years in, in California and allowed not just Los Angeles, but many school districts across the state to be in such a uh, difficult shape. In addition, uh, Calif- uh, Los Angeles has been the epicenter for um, charter school prolif- proliferation. We have more charter schools in Los Angeles than any other city. And we now have a pro- charter uh, school board, uh, the most expensive school board race in the country was waged here in Los Angeles a year ago. And so that, with the appointment of a pro charter superintendent, Austin Butner, an investment banker, I think has added to the sense of anger and, re- uh, and frustration on the part of teachers. They also want to send a message to the governor, who they helped to elect, that they've got to do something to support public education.
1: Let's talk about the money here for a minute because the superintendent's position, Austin Butner says they can't afford to hire more teachers, more counselors, more nurses because they don't have the money. But, but California has the world's fifth largest economy. It's home to Google, Apple and Twitter. L.A. in particular has Snapchat and Netflix and Google expanding all over the place. And of course, there's the film industry. How could they not have enough money for public schools?
4: Well, that's the big problem. And, and, you know, it, the district is, um, in fact, running a huge deficit each year. So their, their, their concerns about their financial well, well-being are not made up. That's been verified by the county, which is threatened to impose a fiscal monitor, and by the state of California. But as you pointed out, the state has been underfunding schools in Los Angeles and, and throughout the uh, the entire state uh, for many years, and and that's I think a reflection of the ways in which um, school funding policies have evolved since Proposition 13. Uh, Proposition 13 uh, changed the um, the way property taxes were collected. Property taxes, local property taxes, fund public education. So what we've seen in the years since Prop 13 was passed in 1976 is that wealthy districts that can tax themselves more have more money for their schools. So you go to places like Beverly Hills or Santa Monica, they don't have these concerns with large class sizes that you have in Los Angeles. But in poorer uh, jurisdictions, uh, it's a huge challenge. And, you know, even though Jerry Brown put more money into education when he was governor, it, it's just barely at pre-recession levels from 2008. So we have a long way to go to, um, to begin to adequately fund education in California.
1: And I want to talk some more about charter schools and the billionaires who support them. It's been a huge issue in school politics in L.A. for a while now.
4: Right. Well, so Eli Broad has been a major um, benefactor, of uh, pro-charter candidate, but so was Richard uh, Reardon, the former mayor of uh, Los Angeles, put a million dollars behind the uh, election of Nick Melvoin and defeated Steve Zimmer, the former board president. So the wealthy have been backing uh, reform but through charter uh, for a while. You know, what's crazy about it is many of the charter schools in, the, in Los Angeles now are under-enrolled. They don't have enough students. That's true for many school district uh, schools as well, um, because L.A. has become a, a city that's too expensive for families to live in. So the the, the ways in which um, the wealthy, uh, these wealthy individuals like Eli Broad, Broad have uh, become involved in the school system and its politics has, I think, become yet another factor that teachers are trying to push back against.
1: And tell us about the union, UTLA, United Teachers Los Angeles, the vote in favor of a strike was was ninety eight percent. It was really astounding.
4: Absolutely, the teachers are angry. They um, they're they're fed up, and uh, a strike is a high stakes strategy on their part because you don't know how long teachers can stay out; they're not getting paid, and you don't know how long parents will support it. But um, in some ways, the way I look at it is uh, at, at a certain point. Teachers are just fed up with the conditions and have to say the the conditions in our schools are unacceptable and we're not going to work under these conditions. And I'll just give you one example: a high school I work with in South Los Angeles, Hawkins High School, has. There's a classroom for these are recently arrived immigrant students, uh, many of whom don't speak um, a word of English and are illiterate in a native language, most of which is Spanish, being uh, in a classroom with 40 kids and a, and a, a new inexperienced teacher. Uh, we're fooling ourselves if we think these kids have any chance of getting education under those circumstances. And that is replicated in schools throughout the, country, uh, throughout the city. And, and this is what I think is fueling a lot of the anger uh, among teachers.
1: And how many of the uh, students are from families with incomes below the poverty line?
4: Oh, about 80% of the children uh, come from families with uh, incomes below the poverty line. 80%? 80%. And you know, most of those kids are Latino and African American. So you're talking about a district that is serving very disadvantaged kids. Uh, the equity issues are primary. Now um, a lot of the um, affluent people who are whiter um, in in Los Angeles um, don't have kids in the public schools, and therefore this strike doesn't impact them, and um, and and the politics don't impact them, and uh, even though they get to vote in the election, so it's it's interesting to watch how this plays out. It's impacting some communities much much more than others.
1: And let's talk a little bit about Austin Butner, the head of the school system the man who can settle this strike what's his background in education
4: he has no background in education he's a former investment banker uh former um publisher of the la times and and that's i think one of the issues for the 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 union they see him as a real threat it's not necessarily clear what he wants to do what he will do um but it is clear that um he's you know was backed by eli Broad and the others And it's seen as a part of this takeover strategy of the school
1: district. And L.A., as you said, has a mayor, Eric Garcetti. There's talk that he wants to be president. The first day of the strike, he said, quote, I'm immensely proud of Los Angeles' teachers today for standing up for what I believe is a righteous cause. He said, lower class size, that's a righteous cause. He said, I believe that support staff to keep our children healthy, to keep them counseled well for their college and their careers, that's a righteous cause. It sounds like uh, he's supporting the union in this.
4: He is, and that's uh, pissed off uh, some people. And and I have to say, um, because now today, he's, he's, you know, he and Newsom are calling for, uh, you know, a return to negotiations between the two sides. You know, Garcetti uh, has relied on the teachers union for election and uh, for his own election. And here as mayor of L.A., and he apparently has presidential aspirations. And so, having support from union is going to be. Very important in that. But Garcetti does know this, uh, that the district is um, is in trouble financially. And I would say that he, he's got to do more than simply say, I support the teachers. He's got to be involved in helping to fix the system. And um, I haven't seen that kind of leadership from him.
1: So how will this end? How can it
4: end? <laughs> That's the million-dollar question. You know, who's going to give in? You know, if the district doesn't have the money, at at some point, unless the governor steps in and says, look, we'll help out with these pension costs because teacher pensions are a big part of the reason uh, why the district is running its deficits? They're going to they're need help from elsewhere to, to bring this to an end. And I, I imagine that the new governor uh, doesn't want this to become uh, a bigger source of controversy so early in his in his governorship. So I would look to, to Newsom to be the uh, to play a role in bringing this to an end.
1: Pedro Noguera, he wrote about the L.A. teacher strike for the TheNation.com. Thank
4: you, Pedro. Thank you. It's great being with you.
1: Finally, this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. This week, Dave looks at the new coaches hired in the NFL and asks the question, how racist is this league? That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.